0: what's going on everybody this is your boy Dex with the I Am Pits podcast and we're back for another episode it's been a long time since I've done an interview so we got an interview getting ready to come up with a very special guest kind of controversial some people might say me I'm not looking for controversy I'm just here to look for the truth and hear what his side of the story is but before we do that you know it's been a while I'm gonna go ahead and apologize I am not feeling that great I don't know what's going on woke up feeling horrible it's the uh Kentuckyana weather down here, man, sinuses is all jacked up, so my head's hurting a little bit, but I'm still here because I know y'all want that good content. I'm going to give it to y'all, but before we go further, let me go ahead and give a shout out to Gunfighter Trading Company. You all have heard me mention them on the show before, gunfightertradingcompany.co. This is the NCO candle that I'm burning right now. Like I said, these guys are still doing their things and have a ton of deals going on, all types of merchandise. Get your little manly candles right here like I got, man. These things are phenomenal and they make a great gift. So I'm still rocking with Gunfighter Trading Company, man. So please make sure you go gunfightertradingcompany.co and go get you some merch and get you some cool candles and all that good stuff, man. They were actually in town a couple, about a month or two, uh, actually two months ago. They were in town for the Christmas show and I actually met them in person. They hooked me up with a cool little hoodie and all this stuff, man. So, man, big shout-out to those guys, man. Like I said, go show them some love and some support. You know, if there's anything I support, I support veteran-owned companies and law enforcement. And so these guys are both of those. Go show them some love and give them some support, okay? So with that said, you all know one of the main reasons that I told you that I started the I Am Pits Podcast is because I love talking to people. I love guests. I love authors, I love officers and soldiers who, like me, took the time to write their story to share with others, because I believe that it is so important that we not die with the stories that we have lived and that die with the stories that are our lives, but that we share those with other people so that they can learn from our lives. And, you know, writing a book is one of the hardest things a person can do. So for anybody that writes a book and wants to come on my show, I want them on the show So that we can promote their book and promote their story, but also get their story from their own lips. Because we know in the day of media, there's so many people out here that are willing to tell your story for you, but they're not going to tell the whole story. Kind of like when I tell people why I wrote my book, When when I die, there will be no question in my kids or my family's mind who I was because they have my story that I wrote. Nobody else wrote that I wrote. So they'll have my story. So with that said, I have on, getting ready come on, a former LMPD officer, Corey Evans, who I actually used to work with on LMPD many years ago. I served with him in the first division a little bit and also on the LMPD SRT team, the riot control. So I've known Corey for a little while. I don't know deep, deep, deep Corey. Like never hung up with him outside of work, but I've talked to Corey enough. So Corey to me has always been a straight up dude. He's a freaking warrior and he's a patriot. That's what I can tell you. But what what happened with Corey is he ended up going to prison for a couple of years for an incident that happened during the Breonna Taylor riots. And there was this narrative being put out by the news that he did this thing. And my thing has always been, well, and I go, I was swe- at one point in time, I was swayed by the news. Like, man, maybe you deserve to go to jail. But then once I was talking to Corey and I was like, yeah, that doesn't make sense. Like, how come they haven't released the video? That's when I started to question things. And that's when I said, you know what? Who better to hear from than the man himself? Has had to go through this ordeal, then Corey Evans, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Iron Pits Podcast. Corey Evans, what's up, man? Hey, man, what's going on? Not much, bro. Uh, Not much. Hang bro. My,
1: yeah,
0: just what's hanging that?
1: out with my boys, and my dog. Hang out with the kids and the dog today.
0: Oh man, man welcome, to, welcome to the show, man. Hey, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to come on the show, brother. Hey, it really means a lot to me, man.
1: Yeah, for sure, man. That's just uh, you know, I started a new job on Monday and uh just trying to keep life moving along. Uh it's been a it's been a journey, that's for sure.
0: I I ain't never met a cop felon before.
1: Yeah, there's not <laughs> too many of us out there, but uh yeah, man, it's uh it's it's I didn't think that being a felon would affect my life as much as it has, but man, it is uh way more difficult to get by as a felon than I thought it was. That's for sure. Absolutely, Uh, employers are really scared. And the thing about it is, is I don't think that places that hire felons um, generally look at guys like me as the felon type. And when they see that I used to be a cop, that's when I start to run into issues because places that hire felons don't want former cops working with their felons because it creates a conflict. So I've had a really hard time finding a a good job. Man.
0: That's rough, brother. That is rough, man. But before we get to that, we're going to start at the beginning with well, where? Because I know you're from Kentucky, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's where I originated from, yeah. Where at? Uh, so it's a real small town called West Liberty, Kentucky, uh, in Morgan County. So what the County? towns are generally Morgan, M-O-R-G-A-N. Morgan County, yeah. okay. Yeah. Right. What up, up? That's my youngest one. He's wanting a drink.
0: Uh, <laughs> hey, family first, man. That's always was important. Yeah, Daddy, hey, you might be unemployed, but when you're yeah. a father, <laughs> you're never unemployed.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I got them, got them outside playing right now. They're uh, coming up with little games and stuff to play. So they're coming in every few minutes asking me to help with something. So uh, yeah, just getting them drinks and things like that. But yeah, yeah the. Uh, but yeah, so Whistlery is where I originated from and everybody there, you had just a couple of options uh, growing up. You had the option of going to college and leaving the area for a job if you were smart enough, um, but most of the local jobs were uh, coal miner or coal mining adjacent type jobs. Like you worked at a, a gas station or fuel station that that supplied them, guys. Uh, but there wasn't a whole lot of other teaching jobs. My mom was a teacher and my dad was a coal miner. And that's oh, really all there is in that area for like professional, well-paying jobs. Um, so there's, there was nothing growing up where I was at. Uh, most of my uncles and stuff, they were like the handyman types. They would, uh, you know, build for people and things like that, but nothing, there's no real professional job. Like you're never going to meet, um, you know, an, an attorney out there is going to be the, uh, Prosecutor and like one defense attorney that like, you know, helps out with like six counties. Like, there's just not that many Jeez. professional careers out up. Yeah, very. So steep. this is
0: Eastern Kentucky, high, Kentucky, right?
1: Yeah, way deep out the sticks, like Pikeville, Paintsville, oh, okay. uh, Saliersville. Yeah, way out the sticks. Yeah, um the closest Walmart to me growing up was 35 miles. Um,
0: Jesus, 35 miles. Yeah.
1: Yeah, if you wanted to go to Walmart, it was it was a pack up the kids, let's make a trip of it. You know, it wasn't a, hey, I'm just going to run down the road real quick and grab something. Like it was, you know, if if we got a good snow, you better be stocked up on bread and milk. That's for real.
0: Yeah, That's where that comes from, that trope in Kentucky. When it snows yeah. in Kentucky, everybody runs to the store bread. get bread and milk and eggs.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's where it comes from, yeah. man, because, like, where I'm from, if it, if it snows, you're done. And it doesn't take a lot of snow in eastern Kentucky. Like, a lot of these, like, people up in Michigan and stuff are like, oh, we get three feet of snow. It's like, good for you, man. It's like, down here, the, the road's barely wide enough for, you know, a truck to get through, and if you just ain't getting to plow through them. So,
0: and it's very mountainous, it's just, mountainous, too. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's very rugged. People don't realize how rugged the Appalachian Mountains really are. There's certain areas of them that are – I mean, especially up in West Virginia, like Southern West Virginia, uh, Eastern Virginia. It's very rugged in those areas.
0: And so, OK, so you're from Morgan County now. And I know you were in the military. What led you to join the military? What When did you join in what branch? Uh,
1: so I joined when I was 17, when I was still in high school. Um, so I was looking at options. Uh, I was a pretty smart kid. You know, I was an A-B student. Uh But if you're not, like, acing everything, if you're not top of the class, you're not going to get scholarships. And being who I was in the era that I was growing up in, I wasn't going to get the scholarships to get through school. So I was like, I'll join the Army. And it was right when the Army was really pitching hard, like, hey, join up. You know, this is 2005. So, like, hey, join up, fight in the war. We'll pay for your school, GI Bill. They're really promoting the whole be a warrior thing hard back then. So I was like, that's what I want to do. So I joined the Did army. You play
0: sports at all? Uh,
1: yeah, I ran track and cross country. Uh, nothing like I played football for a handful of years, but I was a skinny kid. Like I was real skinny back then. I was uh, when I graduated high school. I was six foot four and one hundred and fifty five pounds.
0: Boy, you was so a beanpole, my man.
1: Like, yeah, yeah, I was a skeleton. Like I mean, there was no meat on me, so I couldn't really. <laughs> Play the the physical sports, you know, back then because I was just so skinny, man. I was just so easily pushed around. Uh, so like football and stuff, I played wide receiver up until high school. But you know, when I started getting you know drilled by a middle linebacker that you know is you know five ten and two hundred twenty pounds, I was just getting crushed. So, taking uh, <laughs> yeah. my bones, I, I left those sports and just ran track and cross country.
0: Makes sense. You was built for you was definitely built yeah. for a running the distance, bro. Yeah,
1: I was built that's for speed iron. back then. <laughs> yeah, so I did I did decent running, uh, track and cross country. Um, you know I did uh, you know I was always placed in regions and things like that, never once state or anything like that. But I was a decent runner. Uh, but that that's funny because you think in the army they're looking for guys that are like big strong dudes like like the middle linebackers that would crush me, right? But when I joined the army, I ran my two mile, my first two mile in ten minutes and thirty seconds, and that absolutely blew the drill sergeants' minds away. They're like, "Well, this kid is this kid is it. He's going to be a PT stud." Even I could only do like fifty five push ups, you know, they thought. because <laughs> uh, I mean, I hate that now. Looking back, I'm like, I wish that the army would get away from this. Like the guy's fast at a two mile run that makes him a PT stud, because it's it like we can get into this it's a whole argument for me in the you know policing and soldiers like pt standards are not what i think they should be like it's it really bothers me that being fast is what good or shouldn't be it should be more uh more explosive based conditioning i think yeah that's me bro you can get away with
0: anything in the army if you can you're a pt stud if you can run fast bro You could, like, they could find you in, like, the the town over with, like, six dead hookers Uh, in your room uh, and a pile of cocaine, and they'll sweep it it under the rug because because you're run. (laughs) He's a (laughs) good soldier. Uh-oh, freezing up a little bit on me. Yeah.
1: So, uh, Uh, yeah, what I was saying was, Uh yeah, Uh, but, yeah, what I was saying was, uh a lot of these guys in the army that do like hundred push ups, people expect that. You know, people expect people to be strong like that. But when you can run fast, it just blows their mind for whatever reason. But I'm more impressed with the guy that can run like a fourteen or fifteen minute two mile and then uh you know, throw fifty cal ammo cans all day long. That's that's what I'm more impressed with. Um uh,
0: combat yeah. effectiveness. Yeah, I can kill this.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's the problem I have with a lot of like these PT tests is they don't do a good job of like because like I remember specifically when I was in Afghanistan, uh, we were in a firefight and I was handing ammo cans. This is where I completely changed my mindset on PT and got completely away from uh, the whole be a good runner. I can run all day long. I can go all day long but I didn't have that upper body strength, that physical conditioning. So one ammo can of 50 cal weighs around 60 something pounds. So you have to hold it with one hand, and hand it up to the gunner. If you can't do that over and over and over again, pressing that 60 pound ammo can up to the gunner, then you're no good. I don't care if you can run a, a five minute two mile, you know, you've gotta be able to move those ammo cans or carry those mortar rounds and get them to the gunner side or get them to the fighting positions. That's that's more important to me because who cares if I can run a ten minute two mile if exactly I can't get I can't get ammo to the fighting positions to do the fighting, you know?
0: So, yeah, it makes sense, dude. Minute, so, so let me ask you: when you jo- when you joined in two thousand five, did you join because the post nine eleven era? You know, th- th- were you like me, I guess, and a lot of guys from our generation? You know under the illusion that you know we were attacked and i got to go defend my country or was it more so for you a selfish thing not saying that that's a bad thing but a i got to get the hell out of this county and get my life started
1: it was a combination of both like i really wanted to go fight for the country but i didn't want to stay in the county i was from i knew the army was my ticket out but i also knew that it was going to be beneficial for me for the rest of my life so it was a combination of both um because my mom really wanted me to go to college Uh, but I was, I wasn't anti-college, but I knew that I wasn't the type to be cut out for college. I wasn't going to be, uh, the type to sit down and write papers and study and do this and do that. So I really wanted to get out there, get started in life, just hit the ground running and the army was my ticket to that.
0: Awesome, man. So when you went and talked to, did you know what you wanted to do when you army?
1: No, I had no clue, man. Um, That's one of the reasons why I ended up with my first MOS, which was 89 Bravo as an ordnance tech. Um, So I did, like, it's like all the ASPs and all that, Where you get all your ammo from, that's where I originated at. Uh, But I got really lucky, so I was part of a ordnance company, and that's all we did was was ammo. I was there for, like, maybe a year or less, and uh, the... Uh, platoon sergeant was in charge of me it was like hey man you're super good at PT you're really smart uh this isn't where you need to be in the army you're not this the army can use you in more places so he escorted me over to a special operations battalion it was like hey this is what you all need they had an opening for an 89 bravo and i jumped into special operations and did that there for like 12 years 13 years something like that uh that's that's really where I got the bulk of my tactical and technical training into the uh, combat arms stuff. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how I was, I, was, think, I was like one yeah. of like just a handful of airborne eighty nine Um You know, that's just not a common MOS for that that sort of stuff. So I was I was really lucky in in how my career played out.
0: That's yeah, that's pretty dope because I knew you were attached to special forces. So for the civilians that are listening to this podcast right now. So he worked with special forces. So be wary. There are people out there that work with special forces that will tell you that they were special forces and they didn't go through the pipeline. You chose not correct. to though. Correct. Why is that? Cause I mean, yeah, that's, sure. cause, that's weird. Cause I, you, I, you would figure being in that environment surrounded by these top tier tier one warriors that you'd be like, Shit, man, I'm gonna go ahead and go through the pipeline and you know, yeah. go through all the special forces, you know, the, the Q course and all that, man. And, you no, know, the I figured you would, but yeah. no, you saw so my reason. You yeah, did. You so, just stayed where you were. Um,
1: yeah, it's, it's bad decisions making, man. So, I was dating this girl. Yeah. Oh, there we and go. And <laughs>
0: she, yeah, <laughs> all good army stories mean, start. I, I, yeah, yeah, I was dating this girl,
1: <laughs> but she was adamant that I not go special forces. Uh, she did not want me go to the actual 18th series schools. Um, so I had trained really hard to go to selection. I had. I had in my mind I was going to go to selection. I was going to get selected. You know, a lot of the guys that I worked with that were tabbed up were like, "Hey man, you're going to make it. You're, you're you're the guy we want you to go." And I turned to go, and then she was like adamant, crying, and oh no, I don't want you to go. We're not going to spend any time together. And I was like, "All right, I won't. I won't go right now." And I just kept putting it off, kept putting it off, kept putting it off. Um, and then I did get to go to Ranger School um, as a a, a reward for some stuff that I'd done. So that's one of the things about the special forces community is you don't get a whole lot of medals. If you're not, if you're not tab, they're not putting you in for any of the high speed awards. They'll give you coins and they'll give you uh, schools and things like that. If you want to do them, but they're not going to drop a bronze star with a B device on your chest. They're, they're just not going to do that. That's reserved. You, for the, the guys.
0: I want people to catch what you said. You were rewarded with going to ranger school. It's, a, it's yeah. a different mentality when people don't know what Ranger School is. That is the Army's premier leadership school, yo. So Ranger School is, what, three months of literally, pardon my language, but an yeah. ass whooping from day in and day out for three months in three different phases. Yeah. And people lose yeah, up to like 25, 40, yeah, 45 pounds in Ranger School. You're starving, you're not sleeping, and it's continuous and, un- and never-ending. And this is how Special yeah. Forces reward you. And I tell people, yeah. it sounds... Weird, but I'm like, it's not in that world because that's what you want. You want that tab, that ranger. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a ranger yep. and like you. Passed it up for a woman. Biggest mistake in mm-hmm. my life, but you know, yeah, we learn, we learn as we go, man. <laughs> yep.
1: and, and like after me and this chick broke up, I was like, now I'm gonna go be special operations. Now I want to go do it. And then LMPD called and we like, hey, we got a spot for you in the next academy. And I put it off again. And we'll see how that played out.
0: So were you? When um, you joined, did you join National Guard or did you go active?
1: I went active first, and I, I ended up in the National Guard after my first deployment. So after I deployed in 2008 at the end of my first contract, that's when I came to the National Guard side of the house. So a lot of people don't know this, but uh, the Army National Guard has two groups of special forces. You have mm-hmm. 19th group and 20th group. So there's right. National Guard special forces. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that. but And they are they deploy just as much. I deploy just as much as a National Guardsman as I ever did as active duty. Um, so active duty, special forces, they do a lot of rotations. But then National Guard, we do just as many rotations and J-Sets as active duty does. The only difference is is I'm bouncing back and forth between a civilian employer and uh, special operations. Uh, because while I was in the police academy, uh, I was my group came to me and they're like, hey, we need you to go to a JSAT in Bangladesh. Uh so I was looking at going to Bangladesh for six weeks while in the academy. Luckily I was able to, to dodge that deployment. Uh but in 2018 I ended up going to Germany for a year. I did a year deployment to Germany in what's called SOC Ford EE, uh Special Operations Commands, Ford of Eastern Europe. I was in uh Ukraine, Moldova, Azerbaijan, the Baltic nations Uh, And we were doing counter Russian aggression. Um, You know, we were, you know, helping these Eastern Bloc nations prevent Russian aggression into their country and into their area. Uh, A lot of people, if you connect the dots, from my perspective, Joe Biden gets elected, they pull funding for that mission. A year later, uh, Putin invades. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people can do their own thoughts on that. But, my opinion, Joe Biden caused the, the Russian invasion because he didn't want to put the money towards that sophomore E mission.
0: And so let me ask, so before we get to uh, LMPD, I know that sure. you are heavy into martial arts. What's your specific martial yeah. arts that you do? Uh,
1: so I do pancreation. I, I do a lot of teaching now, not much yeah. fighting. but um, Were yeah, you always pancration into that? Is, no, I didn't get into that until I got onto LMPD. Um, you know, I always thought that I was a pretty tough dude being part of special operations and doing like the army combatives and, uh, doing their little, you know, hand to hand classes that they teach every once in a while, but you don't know how to fight with army training. It's just when it comes to like fist fighting, hand to hand fighting, the army does a really bad job of teaching guys that, uh, even in mm-hmm. the special operations environment. Uh, they just don't teach you how to fight. And neither does the police academy. Like I thought Very I was, generic. you know, yeah, I thought I was Billy Badass. And my first pancreation class, I had a 145 pound <laughs> redhead kid just whooped my ass, dude. I mean, he boxed my <laughs> ears. And I was like, what is going on? You know, I'm six, four. And at the time I was like 215 pounds. So I was a fairly large person. And this like kid that I had almost 100 pounds on was just beating me up. And that really humbled me and showed me that I wasn't as tough as I thought I was. You know, it's just, just
0: wasn't. Okay. So Uh-oh. you got this, the martial arts background. So, but at what point did you think while you're serving in your military career, man, I want to become a police officer. Was there like, cause I know when I was thinking about, it, I was looking at the federal level. I wanted nothing to do with yeah. local policing, but as you said, a woman, I end up doing mm-hmm. local policing, which I'm glad I did do because that's my kind of my, that's my, that kind of, that's my love and my passion, man. So, what yeah. made you center on policing and where all did you apply to?
1: Uh, so, I really wanted to get into policing because I, I think it was after my deployment to, um, I can't remember what country I was in, but I just, I was dealing with like a local community there and I was, I saw some kids that were. Hey, boys, I'm, on, I'm talking, okay? You're going to have to stop talking. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, oh, boy. But they uh, – I saw these kids. They were about my boys' age, about six and eight, and they were just – they they were so proud of these little chickens, and they were, like, showing me these chickens like we ride on foot patrol. And They're, like, look at it. Look at, look at, and I was, like, oh, that's awesome little chickens, man. And they were so proud of these, like, little mangy-looking chickens. And I was, like, man – where are these guys parents where are these kids you know who's taking care of these kids and then i got to thinking it's like i'm over here in another country worried about another country's kids when i could be at home worried about you know kids in my own community and that's you know so i just got a soft spot for like kids and like you know them growing up and and making sure their environment's safe and i really wanted to do that at a local level because being in the army I was taking care of the rest of the world, not taking care of my community. And that's kind of what put Mm. me on the path to be a police officer because I wanted to be more directly involved with my community. And I had applied to, I applied to state police. I applied to like Lexington, Georgetown and a few others, but, uh, doing my research, uh, I wanted to live in Louisville because I had been stationed at Fort Knox for a hot minute, just a few weeks prior to the deployment. And, uh, I really like Louisville. I thought it was the coolest city on the planet because I've lived in Germany. I've lived in uh, all over the United States and I just really like Louisville. wanted to put roots there. So I I really, I applied to Louisville, I think, five times before I finally got hired.
0: Really? Yeah,
1: I put in... Five times? In yep, five times.
0: Even uh, with the mi- military background, took you five times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good lord, dude.
1: Uh, I don't think they were looking for uh, a guy with military background back then. I think they were looking for the college educated young kid, you know, 22, 23 years old. Because all of my class, I think I was like the second or third oldest in my class. Uh, And the oldest was that uh, some like 55 year old guy that had retired from like the ambassadors or something like
0: that. What year did you you get hired by LMPD? uh, 2014.
1: Yeah. Okay, September. I think I got them all in August. Yeah, so I okay. I got hired in 2014. And I think I hit the streets in like May or something like that, May of 2015.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you hit the streets in May of 2015. What's it like for you finally getting to this point where man, I want to be a police officer and I want to serve. And where were you where did you get us where did you get assigned, as a matter of fact, too? What was that? So like? my my first assignment was out in the seventh division. What? I
1: also had the blue six and So for people that I know, also, the
0: seventh division, that's in Louisville. That's kind of Louisville's south. what you call it? south southeast? I guess.
1: Yeah, it's like yeah. it's like east east end light. Uh, yeah. yeah. it's So you get you get some uh, silly stuff out there. It's mostly domestic violence and things like that. But I remember uh, wanting to be like you know hit the ground running and like go get them. And because in the academy they they preach hard about hitting, hitting the streets, going after them, and, and and doing all that, and then they put put me in the seventh division. And I think there was like a week I went by with like one call for service, like. And none of those guys out there <laughs> want to do anything proactive. Like it's like we're going to sit. I remember my PTO took me to a movie one time. We went to a movie and watched a movie on duty. Uh, we,
0: yeah, not even the worst I've heard. I've heard of fishing. I've heard of hunting. I've not heard of the movie. (laughs) Yeah. So we went to the movie
1: theater out there, watched the movie. Hey, Ansel, go ahead and get your iPad. Go get it.
0: Took him to a movie. Do you remember what movie it
1: was? Uh, Man, I don't remember. Uh, we went to church. We went to church every Sunday, uh, on duty. (laughs) Uh, yeah, so we I went mean, to a I movie be we went went church. church. Yeah, be I'm not church. mad. I'm not <laughs> hate, but you know, it's just the things that, that we were doing was not my idea of policing. You know, it's not what uh, we go to the J- floor. Exactly, we went to the J Mon shop. Like we went shopping a lot. Um, uh, So it's just things like that where it's like, was like, what in the world, man? It's like, what God? Kind of- so. But that was the seventh division, completely different culture from my next assignment, which was the first division. Now, in the first division, your career is made break by what you accomplish. Uh, Like if you're not out there, uh, what I ended up referring to it as hunting. Uh, And a lot of the guys I, I rode with, we called it hunting. We're like, hey, man, we feel like hunting today. And it was just. We went for dope. We went for guns. You know, we went for all the hot spots in the first division at the time. Beecher Terrace was still there, so we hit Beecher Terrace hard. Uh, we go down the Russell
0: neighborhood. You. Yeah,
1: uh, it's gone <laughs> now. It's,
0: it's gone. gone back. I don't know what. Doing. No, they they, well, they rebuilt they, it with these uh like nice, I guess homes yeah, for like low income homes. Like it's like weird. In yeah.
1: Yeah. Is it, is it still a federal housing project, or is it like oh privately yeah. owned?
0: It's, uh, oh, it is. I think, oh. it, I th- I think it's still. Fe- I think it's still federally, federally owned or local. One of them, but dude, I tell people you can tear down the projects, but until you change the mentality of the people working there, it's gonna be yeah. the same problems. And guess what? It's the yeah. same problems. Right? Ain't nothing changed. It's just a yeah. better looking environment. It's yeah, like your memorial well, looks better, better sitting better on the corner. While. That's all. Yeah, <laughs>
1: but it's only been better looking for a little while, man. Because. Of- that mentality that comes with it, just, they destroy everything around them. Like they don't take care of anything. They don't respect anything. Like go into any of the neighborhoods, like the bad neighborhoods in the West end. And they're just, they're covered in trash. There's litter everywhere, broken, broken glass bottles. It's like, if you don't take care of the place where you live, man, it's just, it demoralizes you. And I think that's a huge problem. It's a cultural problem. You know, it's not got yeah, anything absolutely. to do with like, you know, and Portland's the same way,
0: Russell's the same way, all of those poor neighborhoods. And Portland's, and Portland's, neighborhoods, more, and Portland's more yeah, more mostly it's yeah, I know, I just, it's culture, it ain't got nothing to do with yeah. color. It is literally culture. Mm-hmm.
1: A, a poor neighborhood is a poor neighborhood, and you can be in poverty because I grew up poor, but you can be in poverty. I, I explained this, I, I made a Facebook post a while back about this. There's a difference between being poor and being in poverty. If I'm in poverty, I'm looking for a way out, I'm looking for the next opportunity, but when you're poor, when you have that poor mentality, you're not just broke, but you don't care. You don't care about anything else. You don't care about nothing else, and that's why some of these poor neighborhoods are just covered in trash because they don't care. But you go into a, a place where it's poverty, and it's still at least clean. The people might not be living that great, but at least clean, or cleaner. But that's that's just something that, that, that was a culture shock, man. When I went into the Russell neighborhood and Portland, and just the way some of these people think and live, it's it's just crazy.
0: So I was going to ask you, you coming from the the sticks of of Eastern Kentucky, coming to work in a, you know, the hood primarily. What was like your first initial thought? Like, hey, I grew up just like you all, but I'm not like y'all. Like, what was like really going through your mind, policing out there, and then being introduced to this whole new culture? Because that's one thing they've been trying to push in policing is, you know, you go through the academy, they give you, you know, what Hispanic training to deal with the Mexican mm-hmm. culture. And somebody made a good point up like, yeah, but then you take these young white kids that ain't never been around black people in the hood, and then you drop them in the middle and don't give them any training on the culture out that way. And then mm-hmm. it goes bad, you know? Like, what was it really going through your mind initially when you first got there? I, I think. I think the, the army training
1: had prepared me mentally. Yeah. You know, I hadn't gotten any training specifically on black culture or the poor culture that I just talked about. Um, I think being deployed overseas with Muslims and being deployed overseas where there's like severe poverty. I mean, like I'm talking like really poverty, like the mangy chickens, you know, that type of stuff. Um, And, and speaking with those types of people. And while I was in the army, I got a uh, an associates in sociology, which is culture training. And I did that there specifically for my uh, setup to be a police officer because I thought sociology would be better than a criminal justice degree, because being able to speak to people is, is the biggest part of policing. Absolutely. Uh, so I think, I think I was more prepared than the average bear, when it comes to interacting with a culture that I've never interacted with, just because I've been exposed to a lot of different cultures in the military, um, but it was still a, a shock because you, you're not ready for the type of violence that can come at you out of nowhere with some of these people. Because when I was in the military, you know, uh, somebody bucks, they're done, they're they're dead. We're going to shoot you. But as a police officer, you know you got to de-escalate. And I know everybody mm-hmm. thinks that de-escalation training is like this new cool thing that police.
0: do I'm so tired. De-escalate. I'm so tired of hearing civilian. You need to de-escalate. That's one thing I yes. hate. When officer, you need to escalate. Like when you when somebody tells me to de-escalate, are oh, you gonna piss yeah. me off? and I'm, I'm gonna escalate. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's like, a it's catch like I, I tell people all the time, like I tell people all the time, you can't de escalate somebody that does not want to be de escalated. There has to be an opening to even start the de escalation process. If if I'm pissed off and I'm mad, you've got to let me burn that energy out before you can start de escalating me. If you come at me, you're like, Hey man, calm down. You know, it's like telling a woman to calm down. Like you you, you <laughs> need to calm down. You know, it's never gonna go good for you. Um nah, it never went. <laughs> so, so, it, you can't calm somebody down or de-escalate somebody that's not ready to be de-escalated. You, it's it's not like a switch. I can't go up to somebody that is like carrying a gun and is like fighting mad and already popped off rounds. So like hey, sir, we need to talk, and then they're all of a sudden be like, okay, let's talk about this, and it's going to be the end of it. Um, it just it takes hours, days sometimes to talk people down. I mean, it's just it, like the de-escalate stuff. It makes you so mad, but. You know, they want to say de-escalate when there is no chance of de-escalating, especially not at that point in time. It, it, it's a process, and it takes a long time to de-escalate somebody. And in a situation that can go sideways in a split second, it, there is
0: no de-escalating. A guy um, with a gun, maybe, got a got a, got a a baby held at hostage, and the police shoot, why didn't they de-escalate? Like, well, bro, yeah, kind it, of. <laughs> That's why I say the, the general public has no clue or concept of escalation. None, none, none. It is a catchphrase they've heard on TV and in the media that they don't yep. know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> that ain't how de-escalation works. <laughs> time and distance. Yep. And sometimes you don't have time and you don't have distance. And you got to act. I, it was funny. So uh,
1: whenever I was going through all my stuff, um, I was talking to a couple other guys in the first division. And uh, we were talking about, like, how would you de-escalate each other and how would we try to get each other calmed down? And one of the guys looked at me specifically and said, I wouldn't even try to de-escalate you. I would just shoot you. And he straight up told me he would just shoot me because he knew that there would be, like, if I was at that level, there would be no talking me down. and There was no fighting me. There was no wrestling me. That his options would be just shoot me because he knew there was nothing he could have done to stop me if I wanted to get sideways with him. Uh, and that was us talking about each other as friends. Like he said that if it ever came down to it, he could not arrest me. He would have to shoot me. So like, yeah. yeah and that's, and that, and we were all just, you know, hypothetical. Like, how would we do this? How would we do that? You know, the, uh, uh, what do they call it? Mentally rehearsing as, uh, they just call it like training. But like, we were just talking about situations like that. Like, what would you do with a six foot four, 235 pound, uh, martial arts fighter? I would shoot him. I would not try to fight him and I would not try to deescalate. Him. Like, there's just no, no, there's no, yeah.
0: conflict. It's like asking me, what am I going to, how am I going to deescalate Tim Kennedy while he's on top of me? Mm-hmm. Like, bro, I'm gonna yeah. him with, I'm going to deescalate him with his, uh, nine millimeter round, bro. Yeah, there ain't no winning. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> there ain't nothing you can there's do. Dudes,
1: there's just, yeah. There's certain dudes that you, you cannot, it's just not going to happen.
0: That's unfortunate, man. So you're policing down there, man. How were you enjoying the job of being a police officer? Was it what you thought dude, it, was it was while was. you were doing it?
1: Yes, it was everything that I thought it was going to be, and then some. Um, there was a lot of things that I got to do as a police officer that I never thought that I would do. Uh, a lot of situ- I thought it would be years before I had a lot of police stories, but I mean, like it was like two years, dude, and I could have written a book of everything that i had seen. And two years later, I could have written another book. I mean, you see so much as a police officer, so much so fast that you don't even remember a lot of the like crazy things that you've done. And then like somebody's like, Hey, you remember that time? You're like, Oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> uh, because there's just so much, man. It's just, it's constant. Like I know some police officers say I went my entire career without pulling my service weapon. It's like, well, then obviously you worked in Mayberry because yeah. I couldn't go a week without pulling mine in the West End. Bro, they, bro,
0: they work where we worked at. That's for sure. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah like what? If you worked 20 years and never pulled your weapon, you're in Mayberry, man. Or you're Barney Fife and never, you had one round in your pocket because, man, it is, it was the wild west. Work we it was the west where we worked at.
0: So, you know, around the time you got on, <clears throat> that was around the time that World Star Hip-Hop started coming around and people, you know, mm-hmm. phones were getting bigger around that time, people were recording everything. And I remember the first time, I think, I can't remember, I think I was in DAP or somewhere, but I remember seeing a video of you going viral. And you had this dude out of the car. (laughs) He was Mm -hmm. whooping his ass. (laughs) yo. so what was your – so we're going to get to that situation. But, like, I want you to explain that situation. And what was it like for you seeing this video go viral? (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, it, It went so viral so
1: fast. All right. So I got this guy out of the car. Things happen and you know, he ends up getting beat up. So I'm taking him to the hospital where he's in the back of the ambulance. I'm falling ambulance down by the time I get from 27th and Broadway to UofL hospital, the chief had called me and said, get your camera docked and recorded and go home. It would, it happened that fast. Uh, so it was, I was like, well, what's going on? He's like, I have people calling my office so Sergeant Abersold, at the time, I think he's like a lieutenant now, but Sergeant Abersold. as soon as I got off the phone with them, he calls me. He's like, hey, you got to come back to the, the desk right now. We got to do this air. Uh, it's going it's going viral big time. It's all over the place. I was like, OK. So I get back, got my camera and it had hit Facebook, Instagram. Uh, it was on uh I mean, it was everywhere, dude. I had people texting me, like sending me copies of the video. Like, hey, did you see this? Yes, I've seen it. I was there, actually.
0: You know? It's like, that's me.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I was I actually remember that. But yeah, dude, it went viral fast. And the thing that really blew my mind is that the department would not get out in front of it. They, It was going viral. They would not release the body cam footage. They would not talk about it. Um they kept using the excuse like, oh, it's a it's a pending personnel matter. It's like, so you're going to put a shooting out there where people die, like within hours of it happening. But this right here where it's like you could have like completely solved this issue by showing this dude jumping me and crushed the entire narrative that I'd like to drug him out of the car and all this nonsense. But they would not do it. So the narrative started. Uh, Because some girl, I think the original video, I can't remember her name, but she recorded it as I drug him away from the car. So it looked like I pulled him out of the car. And her story was uh, he refused my search. So I threw a soda into his face and drug him out of the car and just started beating him up. And that was what was posted online. And that's what made it catch fire. It went everywhere. Uh, but the, the truth of the matter is, is I pulled the guy over and he was doing all the classic signs of I've got dope on me. Please don't ask me any questions. So, of course, I started asking questions. I was like, hey, man, you got anything on you? You're not supposed to have. Uh, man, why are you picking on me? It's because I'm black. And I was like, bro, I pulled you over because your window is like limousine. Tint. I was like it. I couldn't even tell who you were.
0: <laughs> I don't know who you are, my man. <laughs>
1: yeah. Like. Like, that was always the biggest pet peeve of mine. If I pull somebody over and, like, hey, sir, I stopped you for your window tint. Because I, I was explicitly tell you I stopped you for his window tint. You pulled me over because I'm black. I literally just told you I could not see you because of your window tint. And now you're pulling the race car. It's like, all right, dude, whatever. So I, I I waited for my backup to get there, and I started running his information. It was a pain, but I got his information from him, ran him. And, of course, you know, you know, ticks, 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 ticks. ticks just all these charges for like trafficking and controlled substances. And I was like, all right, this dude is definitely up to no good. He's got all these previous charges. He's got pending charges. He's got like circuit court pending uh, for dope cases. I was like, all right, he's definitely got dope lines. So I had my one partner go to one side and I pulled him out of the car. I was like, Hey man. And I even quoted Pennsylvania. We mentioned, I told him explicitly, I was like, Hey man, you got to get exit the car. Why do I got to get out of the car? And I told him the D case law, why he's got to get out. And I was like, do not make me pull you out of the car. So he gets out on his own accord and he sits on the bumper of the car. And I have uh, my partner at the time and his PO uh, kind of like stand and watch. And I say, hey, man, can we get permission to search? He says, call your dog. And I was like, OK, I'll call my dog. So I called the canine and I went back to write my, my citation for the window tent. No seat belt, expired tags, suspended driver's license, the whole nine. So I started writing the citation. And. About the time I started writing the citation, he knew the jig was up. He knew that the dog was going to come, so he was going to play his odds. Hey, man, you can go ahead and search it, but get me out of here faster. All right, cool. So the first thing that I noticed on his pants, now this is where the intuition of being a police officer really plays into things because I think if you don't have that good intuition, most people would have missed this. But I noticed he had uh, moisture on, the, on his pants. It looked like he had spilled something. Well, there was a soda in the center console, a can of Pepsi, that had just been opened. You know, like if you just open a can, it fizzes much louder than if it's been open oh, yeah. for a while. Like, you just opened this, so I started pouring it out. As I poured it out, the little dope came out. I was like, "Ah, there it is." I was like, "Put him in handcuffs." As soon as I said, "Put him in handcuffs," the dude attacks me, like run, tries to, like bulldog me over and get back in the car. Uh, well, that does not work out well for him because at the time of this event, I had been training for like my sixth MMA fight. Um, so and i was in fight camp uh i was cutting down to 185 pounds for this fight in particular uh so he thought like oh this is a tall skinny dude i'm just gonna bulldog him over get my car i'm gonna be gone uh he was wrong he got he got caught with an underhook so i underhooked him and then i did what's called a gooseneck and i just fed him like three uppercuts uh he fell over his hands go straight to his waistband as soon as i get on top of him his hand go to his waistband and i just i did like I think three or four like really hard kidney shots. I mean, I gave this guy everything I had on his
0: kidneys. For people that don't know, people typically carry their firearms in their waistband. We are, as officers, are trained on that. So when you see somebody reaching for their waistband, the first thing coming to your mind as an officer is, oh, he's got a gun. He's about to try to shoot me and kill me. So that's where the civilians are.
1: Yeah, Yeah. guns, knife. Uh, I, you know, some people might carry guns in, you know, their ankles or their, you know, shoulder holsters or whatever, but yeah. nobody does that. If they're on the street, yes, yeah, very yeah. rare. Um, so he starts digging in his waistband. It turns out he's not armed. I don't know why he's doing that. And my guess is he just thought, "I'm going to stick my arms underneath him and they're not going to arrest me." I don't know. He wasn't armed though. But uh, I fed him like three or four really hard kidney shots. His arms shoot out from underneath. I get not getting him. And as soon as I get him handcuffed, he starts this like, oh, call my mama, call my mama uh, nonsense. <laughs> this crowd forms like you know, 50 people out of nowhere, man. They're all like hooting and hollering at me. I'm like, oh, shit. Uh, so I like put him in the, a cradle position and I let the PO try to guard him. Like, hey, stay with him. Don't let him do anything. He like lunges back at the dope and is like licking, like trying to eat the dope off the ground. He's like on the asphalt. He's like, oh. and I was like, get him away from the dope. So, like, I pull him away from the dope and then, like, when I drag him by his ankles, his pants come down and people are like, oh, he's tripping his pants off that man. And I was like, I'm not, it's not like I'm trying to strip this dude naked in front of God and everybody. It just, it's just happening. But he keeps doing this, like he lunges at the dope like two or three times, trying to eat it, get rid of it. So finally, we lock him up in the back of the squad car, and uh, you know by this time there's like five or six other officers showing up. We've got a whole crowd control situation going on. Uh, Sergeant Abersold shows up. I give him the lowdown, I'm like, "Hey, this is what happened." Uh, I'm like, "Do you want ambulance to come?" They're like, "Yeah." So then we we transport him to the hospital, and like I said, by the time we got from 27 of Broadway at the Kroger to U of L Hospital, it had hit the internet hard. And I was getting calls from the chief,
0: man. So what? Yeah. Was, what? Yeah. What ended? What was your punishment? Did you get punished for that? Correct?
1: Uh, no, I did not. I was. Uh, I was. I fought it tooth and nail. Like I was not giving PSU or PIU anything to hang me on, man. Because I. I have always followed the law, case law, policy to the letter. Like I was that guy. Like if there's a gray area. I'm going to be able to articulate myself very, very well. But I was really good at knowing the law when I pulled somebody over, like when it came to tent window tent, like there's a certain percentage. It's got to be, there's what's called the AS one line that's on the windshields that say, if you have tent that goes below the AS one line, which is five, uh, five inches from the roof line, that's illegal. So I knew all of that. Like I had my ducks in a row, man. And as hard as they tried to get me, like, I just would not give them an inch to hang me on. And I was able to get out of that entire thing without a single sustained complaint. Uh, but they had hit me up on courtesy because I, I I dropped the F-bomb on the guy. But, you know, the way I articulated that, I was like, you know, you're being discourteous to this man. And I'm like, this guy just attacked me. And I want him to understand in no uncertain terms, what's going to happen to him if he does not comply with my commands? And harsh language is the easiest way to convey those types of commands, and that got me out of it. Uh, everything, the excessive use of force, um, language, all of it was completely exonerated. So I, I got out of that, out there with zero punishment. Now, I, I was placed, I didn't go home for the rest of the day that day, but I, I don't oh, absolutely. that punishment.
0: But But yeah, after that, though, like you, I think you kind of after that, you kind of started developing kind of a negative reputation from what I remember after that. Correct.
1: Yeah. So there was like I think it was mostly officers that didn't work with me that saw me on a regular basis hit social media um, because I was. Busy getting the things that a lot of these other officers couldn't get. Um, you know, if you if you work out in the East End and you see me down here just like kicking ass and taking names day in and day out, you're like, man, he's 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 up to no good. He's excessive, and it's like you just don't work with the type of people that I work with. You can't be in the West End as an active officer and not get into some messes. It's just not possible. Yeah, I don't care going how. To- it's going Yeah, I don't care how good you are with the gift of gab. You have all these people, man. You just don't know how to talk to people. It's like, dude, I know how to talk to anybody. I can hit it off with anybody. There's like, if you go back and look, I mean, I made seven hundred and fifty something arrests in my eight years, and I had twenty-seven uses of force. So for somebody to say that I was always beating people up and this and that, twenty-seven uses of force, seven hundred fifty something arrests in eight years. Um, So. For people to say that there, especially since I'm making my supervisor at the time uh, when I finally left LMPD, only had like 13 or 14 felony arrests. I had over 300 Uh, and he had 10 years on. So I'm at like seven years at the time uh, with over 300 felony arrests and he's got 10 years on and he's only got like three percent of what I've got. So for him to sit there and say I'm too aggressive. I'm not too aggressive. You were just lazy. Mm. Uh, because I guarantee you, if you were doing the type of work that I was doing, if you did the volume that I was doing, you would be producing paperwork too. That's just the nature of the beast. The harder you work as a police officer, the more negative light you're going to see. So I think oh, a, lot yeah. of the had, a lot of the officers that have negative opinions of me just didn't do work like I did. And, that's, and I'm not saying that they're bad cops. They're probably good cops. But they just don't do the volume of work that I do. Uh, every day Do you I think that was work with, the
0: officers you worked with directly?
1: No, there's no officer that I worked with, and I I am still a really good friends with all my beat partners. Beat two Russell neighborhood. I am really good buddies with everybody, still except one, and he's more concerned about his career than he is, you know, being loyal to a friend, uh, which I don't fault him for. You know, you just got to take care of him and his. Um, but nobody that I worked with ever thought that I was excessive. Nobody that I worked with ever thought that I was abusive. Um, you know, and one of them is uh, a, a police officer in another department. And another one is a major crime detective. Um, so, and, and another one is a, one of those SWAT CEOs. Um, so everybody I worked with is gone places in LMPD. Uh, but the thing is, is, I kind of led that crew, and I'm not saying that like I was the, the like de facto, uh, beat daddy. It's kind of like, you know, I was yeah. referred to as the beat. Daddy all the time. So like, i I kind of made the calls of when and where we were going to go, how we were going to do it? Things like that. And we all had phenomenal careers. I mean, we were all knocking it out of the park and I'm sure, you know, a few of them, uh, I, I guarantee you, you oh, know, yeah. every one of them. So.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Worked with them all like that, that. That's what I can say. I was like, I know, Corey, but I've never worked the streets with you directly. I've been on some runs with you here and there, but never directly. I do know that I worked with you directly on SRT, which is the LMPD riot control team. So I'm going to kind of switch there. That's like, that's where I've had most of my interactions with you. And that's kind of where I remember hearing about Corey Evans, Evans' demeanor of a, he's not a good officer. And then this whole thing of he's racist started coming up because of this one incident and so uh-huh. I want to kind of yeah I kind of want to paint the paint the picture for everybody where this is when t- around 2015 is when things started to swing in this country p- country politically after the Mike Brown death yeah. and the Freddie Gray death when people started to not view police officers as the good guys anymore and with yeah. that after that we start going into the whole Brianna Taylor thing and George Floyd thing which really compacted things along with the elections but, and along with COVID people were losing their minds. But a lot of people don't know that yeah. at that point in time on the police department, there was also a sh- strife and racial divide happening with officers on LMPD, And I was kind of directly yeah. involved in that where I was like, I'm not choosing black or white. I'm just choosing, hey, we're the police. Let's do that. yo. And so I remember yeah. being very uncomfortable in a lot of situations where the black officers would go off one end and people look at me like, you coming with us? And I'm like, Bro, I'm just staying I'm cool with who I'm cool with bro so you know and then so I remember we were working this it was a we had an SRT call out downtown you know and I was kind of on I guess overwatch you could say yo know, and I was calling yeah. off and I see all these Hispanic these uh these trucks and all these Mexican flags because at this point in time in Louisville we're having protests daily there's caravans with black lives matter uh antifa and all these crazy crazy weird groups in louisville protesting you know? and so i'm like hey radio just be advised i got a truck of a, a group of trucks with mexican flags just cruising down broadway you know, we i don't know what's going on and we're trying to figure out what's going on and i remember i put in a group chat that and i put hey i don't know what's going on but there's people out here with these mexican flags are everywhere and somebody said hey it's mexico's national independence day and then I remember, I remember the next text that came after that and it was Corey in the group chat with no fear said, how come they celebrating it here? Not in Mexico. And yeah. I tell people, yeah, I tell people like I'm a, I have no filter, but I'm also, I, I have zero filter, but I'm a, uh, I'm a tap person. I call it time audience in place. And I saw that. I was like, no, Corey, no, yeah. just because I knew the current environment we were in what was going on with the team and the racial divide that was kind of splitting with the city and the department? Yo, and I was like, No, and then I just saw it coming, man. I, I saw, I was like, Oh, god. And then the people started saying, Corey's racism. I'm like, I know Corey, Corey's not racist, Corey's a patriot. Yeah. And the thing is, the funny thing is, that was about what four years ago, Corey. If yeah. you look at what's going on at the border now, people are now saying, Why? What you said was true. Like, why are they celebrating here in Mexico? The thing is, everybody's looking at the Beijing we got at the border now like, oh, well, why are all these people coming here? Now we got all these issues that are spreading and people are starting to hate people here illegally now. So it's kind of, it took four years to cook, but here it is, man. And so that's kind of what, then you got kicked off the team after that, man. So what was your thinking during that timing when you said that?
1: Man, it's just like, so my process is if you want to come here because you want to escape the shithole you're from, don't bring those problems with you. Come here and be an American, you Simulate. know, assimilate. Yeah, exactly. Like I don't care if you're Nicaraguan, you're Guatemalan, Mexican, uh, you're Nigerian. I don't care where you come from. But when you get here, you're not that anymore. You're not a Nigerian. You're not a Mexican. You're not a Nicaraguan. You're an American now. And you need to behave like an American. You need to have pride in the country. You need to pride in the flag and and support our way of life. And if you can't, you're going to have the same exact problems that you came from. You cannot bring your baggage with you and expect things to change. Um, because the only thing you're going to do is turn the community that you moved to into what you left. Because if you bring those same values, you bring those same voting points. Ideas. If you do all that, you're going to have the same problem. It's the same, and it's exact same problem that Texas is having right now with people in Florida. People fleeing California. You got all in these New people fleeing those states. Yep, those states suck now because they've had a bunch of bad cultural decisions. They're like, "Oh, this is awful. We're leaving," but they're bringing those problems with them to those states. And it's the same thing around the world. You cannot leave somewhere like when I left Appalachia. When I left eastern Kentucky, I did not bring all the BS that I grew up with to me to Louisville. You know, I have a backyard. I don't, tr- I don't have, you know, 25 chickens in my backyard running my backyard. I have a nice backyard. I
0: Broke don't have – down vehicles. <laughs> Broke down yeah, vehicles. And-
1: <laughs> so, you know, those, those are the things that I grew up around. I did not bring that mindset with me when I moved to Louisville. When I moved to Louisville, I wanted to be a Louisvilleian. I wanted to be the suburban guy. I wanted to be the suburban dad. That's what I wanted, and I assimilated that. I did not bring my Appalachian roots with me. Now, do I still celebrate my Appalachian heritage? Sure. I still go to the Sorghum Festival, which is the festival back home, every year. I still celebrate (laughs) a lot of the things that I grew up around, but I don't have that culture anymore. I left that culture behind for a better culture, in my opinion. But a lot of these people want to move here, have the benefits of a superior culture, but live the way they did with their inferior culture.
0: What do you say to people when they say that's racist, Corey?
1: Well, they can get uh they can get it because I'm not changing <laughs> what I say. I'm not changing the way I feel or my opinions because somebody else is hard on me. Uh now if I was racist, I would say get those you know, out of here or get those people out. They don't need to be here. That's racist saying that you need to assimilate, which really blows my mind. So now that I'm not, I'm no longer fighting. So catch this. I no longer fight, right? Uh, Part of my probation is I'm not allowed to be an active fighter, Uh, but I coach both of my active MMA fighters are both black. Both of them. And these dudes are like my kids. They're both like 22, 23 years old. I'm teaching these dudes how to fight. I'm teaching these dudes how to live with discipline I'm keeping them out of the west end of Louisville. I will not let them go to Louisville. Most of my fighters are in Indiana. They're like, hey, coach, can I go to Louisville? I'm like, absolutely not. You are not allowed to go into Louisville. If I catch you in Louisville, I will drop you from the team. Uh, and that's because I do not want them involved in that culture. I want to raise them as fighters the way I was raised as a fighter, with discipline, with respect. But when it times time to kick ass, you do it. And you have no mercy when you do it. But I'm not going to let these guys – ruin their lives by getting involved in a shit culture in the West End. Of the world. I'm not
0: going to do it. So, it's say people will hear that really, and be offended, yo, but cuz they'll hear that and they'll think that you are saying that everybody in the West End is shit. And we know that's not the case. But the problem yeah. is it's you have a small segment of that population that runs amuck in the entire place. We and we know that yeah. what 98% of people are good people that small 2% ruins it for everybody and it casts the entire area as that man. And I know you agree to that, yeah, it, but it, unfortunately yeah, it, that it, pool it, for it, the dudes, it pulls them in.
1: Yeah, and they're, they are of that age to where they are the most acceptable to that lifestyle and to that culture. Uh, because the one guy that I trained, he is 23. He just got out of prison. Um, you know, he's trying to change his life. And it would be really easy because he's unemployed. I'm trying to get him into the flight game. I'm trying to get him his pro car. I want to see this kid succeed. But if he goes over there and somebody throws him a, a stack of hundred dollar bills and says, hey, man, I made this here in a weekend. It's gonna be really easy for him to get sucked down that rabbit hole. And all it would take is for a guy like me that still hunts hot and heavy to find him and put him right back in prison because he's already a felon he's uh young and he's he's capable of violence so it wouldn't be anything for him to get caught up in that lifestyle and that's what I want to avoid i want to take his his combative energy his ability to fight and i think that he he's he's got potential to go to the ufc man he's a really great kid nice he's, he's a hard worker but at the same time he is easily influenced and all it would take is a few bad days down there for him to get wrapped up in something he should be wrapped up in and he can ruin his life. And that's what I want to avoid. Um, yeah. doing the like Lord's work. Right well, it's, and it's, yeah, I, I like, I don't think that I'm doing the Lord's work. I'm just doing the right thing. You know, I'm no yeah. longer a cop, so I can do it in one way. So I'm going to do it in another way. Um, so it's just, it's just I like fighting and I like teaching and I like coaching and this guy's got a lot of potential and I can make it life better for him. So why would I not do that? You know, and people could call me racist if they want to, but you know, this two young black guys that I'm, you know, dedicating almost as much time as I do to my own boys. You know, I, I teach my own boys pancreation and karate as well. Uh, but to me, you know, there's potential for these guys to go far. They've just got to have the right guiding hand. And they're not going to find that in the Western of
0: the Wolf. So man, we're gonna fast forward a little bit because time's running short, but we don't man, I, I want I'm good to keep this going as long as you are, man, because I'm really yeah, enjoying this. I'm really right, digging right. this, bro. So man, so before that whole incident with the uh caravan, I had just gotten back to Louisville after my time with the border, my, my failed adventure down on the border. <laughs> so yeah. I remember the I think it was my first day in the first division. And I remember walking in, I'm like, yo, what's up, Corey? And I see you. And then I remember seeing our lieutenant walk over to the table and he served you papers. And I'm like, and I just seen your face kind of go like, oh, like what happened, bro? And you got served papers for this incident that happened during the riots in 2020. And so Mm -hmm. we all, like I said, we all know this is at the time when things in this country had changed and policing the P and police did for politics. The job completely taken over by politics at this point in time with George Floyd and beyond. Taylor, nobody was thinking straight, yo. Know? So I then I started asking around, and they were like, "Man, Corey beat up some innocent protester during 2020." And so I've just been paying, and that, like I said, I didn't know the facts because I wasn't in Louisville at the time, so I didn't know what was going on during the first few weeks of the riot, yo. Know? All I hear is, "Well, you know, Corey, he's aggressive and." He's a fighter. He loves coming out here and beating up poor black people and that's just Corey likes to beat up on people for no reason cuz he can, yo. And I was just like, that's not the Corey I know. Corey's a warrior. And if you try to fight Corey, mm-hmm. Corey's gonna make you pay for it, yo. So for me, I was listening to all this and I'm like, man, I got to hear Corey's side and got to get the trial, but unfortunately at that point in time, you were kind of exiled from the, the from the first division and you were sent home yeah. on a uh, leave. So, and I hadn't seen you since mm-hmm. then, man. So, take us into what happened during that point in time during 2020, during the riots, or so where this incident occurred. And we'll go from there, man. I want to know what, what happened from your perspective. And so, for people that don't know, no, they're saying that he beat up a protester with his stick. They took the way they explained it to me was like, You just came in and just like squalate this dude, like tomahawk this dude, and just cut him in half. That's what they're saying. Yeah, that's, but, like I said, people, yeah, this is my problem if we know, this is 2024, if the police or the feds have video of you doing this, which apparently they do, why, and my thing is, why have they not released the tape? Because I want to see the video footage myself, so I can judge. (laughs) But but that's the problem. We don't have that.
1: Yep, they sealed it, Uh, and I can tell you, so going back to the very beginning, I think this all happened day three of the riots. So, By the third day, we had been working, uh, because I was one of the initial responders. We'd been there for like, in the three days that it had been going on, we were there for like 48 hours. I mean, we had been there for almost, I had had almost no sleep. We'd worked like four o'clock in the morning every day, like six hours of sleep a night. They'd just been, you know, marching all over the city. Uh, But we had... Molotov cocktails thrown at us. We'd been shot at. We'd had guns pointed at us. We'd had fireworks thrown at us. Uh, they had thrown pipe bombs. I know the, the news like to reported it as fireworks. There were fireworks thrown, but somebody had been throwing legitimate pipe bombs at us. Um, so there was a lot of officers that were getting hurt. There was a, uh, One of my best friends uh, had been set on fire uh, by the group that this alleged innocent protester was involved with. Uh, so this group, We'd been tracking for hours at this time. Uh, they had broken into a CVS and had stolen every single pharmaceutical out of the CVS. Everything, I mean, all the food was stolen. Every, I, this CVS had been cleaned out. And I remember specifically there was a woman that was outside of the CVS crying, begging the protesters, protest, the rioters to stop stealing the drugs because her baby needed a life saving medica- medication from that particular CVS, because she couldn't get to another one. And these black lives matter protesters told this single black mother, we're doing this for you, uh, while she was begging them not to do it. Uh, oh, so man. that just shows you, yeah. And both of these protesters, both these writers were both white, telling this black mother, that we're doing oh, yeah. this for you. You know, Implants, yeah, really they, didn't, they
0: weren't from here. Yeah. They weren't from the city. Yeah. Oh yeah.
1: <laughs> no, no. Um, so we, we tracked them from there on down. Um, And then they had broken into another place and they were trying to set a Firestone Tire Center on fire. They were throwing moths at this place and trying to set this place on fire. So we encircled them uh, and then we we collapsed the circle in on them and we were given the command, go get them. So the entire SRT team breaks down to a sprint and we're chasing these dudes down. Hold on a second, bud. And then they, this kid that's running, sees me running behind him. And now mind you, I'm in full turtle gear. So I look like an absolute giant. Uh, And he sees me running. He tries to drop to his knees before I tackle him. So as he's dropping to his knees, I come flying across the screen and do like a full on like NFL style Madden blitz. Man, boom, just drilling. Uh, He gets a cut on his head. that's about two centimeters long is what the medical report said. Big enough for one stitch. So it's big enough for one stitch. And I'm like, all right, uh, you know, no big deal. He's got a little blood trickling down the side of his head. We handcuff him. Um, He goes to the hospital and then goes to jail, gets out the very next morning. Well, he goes and files a complaint and says that somebody hit him with a baton. Uh, The feds pick this up and they run with it. Uh, They come after me with everything they've got. Uh, they watch hours and hours and hours of body cam footage. I'm pretty sure they watched every single person's body cam footage on the entire SRT team. They looked at every single security camera in the area. They can't find a single clip of me hitting this guy in the head with a baton. All the only thing they have is my body streaking across somebody's body cam footage from another angle. And because I had my baton in my hand, they claimed that I hit him as I tackled him. And I'm like, Even if I did hit him while I was tackling, I did not intentionally strike this man in the head with a baton. I'm six foot four, and at the time I was at my biggest I'd ever been. I was six foot four, two hundred thirty pounds, professional MMA fighter. And you want to say that I hit this kid in the head with a thirty-six inch hickory stick and didn't scatter his brains across the asphalt? That he just got a two centimeter cut with no no skull fracture, no nothing, no concussion, and he he walked away from that there. you know i'm un- still conscious like he never lost consciousness um so they knew they had no case with with what they had so they compelled me into a or coerced me into a plea deal they're like if you don't plead to this and take the time that we're offering you which was four years uh we are going to relitigate and rehash every single use of force <laughs> complaint we've ever had and we are going to drag you through the mud To the point where not a single jury in this country will ever find you not guilty. Each case would have carried or each count would have carried 10 years. So I was looking at like 270 years in prison if I was convicted on all 27
0: counts. So what made the FBI get involved in this case, man? Because there was so much going Uh, on in the city at point in time.
1: I think, in my opinion... Uh, Now, I can never prove this, obviously. My opinion, they were looking for someone to make an example of, and because of my reputation, they had their guy. Uh, They're like, we can make a case against this guy. Nobody's going to believe that he didn't do this, and we can save face uh, by charging him, convicting him, and it's going to help quell these riots because they will feel like we're doing something. So a perfect set of circumstances, me being a highly proactive officer with a a, uh, history of use of force, they could make that case in the court of public opinion and get the conviction before it ever went to trial.
0: Man. So, at this point in time, what was LMPD's command? How were they being towards you during this?
1: Man, so no one called me, no one contacted me, no one offered me any support. And this is for the FOP too, man. Like nobody was offering me any help. Like, I mean, nobody was giving me a guiding hand. Uh they and you were still employed the by them,
0: correct? And... Do what? Oh and yeah, you were I was still employed. employed. I was
1: employed by them. for almost a year. So I was served, I was uh on desk duty for almost a year before I was finally even indicted. So um uh, but once I was indicted, they were gonna fire me. I caught wind of that and went and resigned. Um, but yeah, man, nobody was giving me any help. Um, like nobody was helping me through this, nothing. And, and the funny thing is, is there's guys that actually had struck people in the head with flashlights, mag lights and batons, uh, and had never even been charged. I know one guy in particular got a 29 day suspension and no criminal charges at all. Um, so it's, I was just viewed as a necessary evil, and I was going to be used to make a point. And everybody was on board with that. I'm pretty sure the FOP was on board with it, pretty sure that the command was on board with it, because Major McClinton, at the time, I think he had been promoted to assistant chief of something. Uh, I had gotten a gift for him, uh, like a bottle of bourbon, I was going to deliver it with uh, one of my other partners uh, for being such a good leader. And when we delivered it, he wouldn't even shake my hand. Uh, you know, just looked me in the face and was like, thanks. And then kind of shoot me out of his office. Uh, you know, that's like, and another guy, another Lieutenant, when, uh, Cotton Jim, uh, passed away, I went to his funeral and a couple of the guys from the first division were there and I went to shake their hands and they wouldn't <laughs> shake my hand. Um, so, I mean, a lot of officers had completely turned their back on me. Uh, people that knew me personally turned their back on me. So I just, you know, I felt really lost at the time, man. It was really tough seeing guys that I would have taken a bullet for not even shake my hand.
0: Why do you think they turned their back on you?
1: Because I was politically inconvenient, man. Like, even associating with me was grounds to get you investigated. Um, I had one guy was going to write me a letter um, for my case, and somebody caught wind of it, and command went to him and said, do not write him a letter. You will be investigated. And so people were just afraid of losing their jobs, afraid of losing their careers, you know. And I don't blame a lot of the guys for not writing me letters that I asked for letters and stuff. I don't blame a lot of those guys for not doing that because I could see that coming back to haunt them. But turning your back on me at a fellow co-workers, because I went to the academy with Cotton Jim. Me and him were pretty close, you know. We'd served in the first division since we got out of the academy. Uh, so I was really close to Cotton Gym. We'd served in B3 together. Uh, Cotton Gym was one of my first beat partners. And the fact that I went there and I felt like an outcast to a group of dudes that, you know, I'd served with was really tough. Um, you know, like I said, like, you know, I would have taken a bullet for any of these guys. Like, if, As a matter of fact, like a lot of the times when these guys got into a situation where they knew they needed some heavy firepower. They would call me like they'd be like, "Hey, we need we need Corey here because he's got a good tactical mindset. We need Corey here because he knows how to handle these situations. We need Corey because he's good at warrants." And they just man, it was it was tough. See, it was really my hard thing is,
0: a lot of guys after you were gone were like, "Man, we tried to talk to Corey. We told Corey he needed to calm down. We went to command about Corey and Sergeant Joe, and command didn't do anything about Corey." Man, so. When when I'm telling you this, what comes to your mind when you're hearing this all these years later that these guys were like, man, we knew Corey was a liability. He was just a loose cannon and the command did nothing about him. They just let him stay on the street. and He was a danger to the city.
1: Danger to this. So that is, I think, CYA talk right there, Uh, because people were calling me up and, hey, man, uh, we're getting ready to go to this call. Can you come with us? Yeah, I'll be there in a minute. Just let me finish this, this accent or whatever. Uh, Command left me on the street even after I'd been indicted for like three months because they needed me on the street. Um, you know, I made a huge difference. Like, if like, I, I know it sounds like I'm being a braggart, but like, without me, Russell neighborhood was gonna fall apart because I was doing that much work on that that beat. And within six months of being off that beat. The murder right had skyrocketed because they knew when I was working that, you know, daddy was home and people were going to behave. You know, Russell neighborhood <laughs> knew who I was. They knew me that I mean, and that was just the way it was. The shitheads knew to keep a low profile when I was on the street, when they saw me riding, the crack dens were shutting down. The heroin dealers got off the corners. Nobody played because they knew I was serious. They knew I was capable and competent to do the job. Uh, And that's the reason why command kept me on B2 for so long. If I wasn't good at what I did, they would have gotten rid of me out of the first division a long time ago.
0: That's a good point, man. Good point. So, so all this transpired and you're sitting here in federal court facing these charges, looking at going away for a hundred and something years at, you know, on the federal level, man. Yeah. What's your mindset as you're going through this? Because you've been abandoned by, the thin blue line, the people that you were supposed to be your brothers, your command. And then not just that you got politicians against you. You've got the media against you. The entire country is against you and watching you on TV saying this giant white cop beat up this poor, poor, poor protester and smashed him with a stick. What's your mindset during that time period?
1: Man, I just, I got really, uh, i am very uh, i've never been one to like cower or hide away or shy away from things uh, i don't i don't hold myself back when i'm speaking um and it's just because i'm not afraid of what i say and what i do everything i do is right everything i do is and i'm not saying i'm a perfect person but when it comes to uh you know policing i i very rarely made wrong decisions uh you know i tried really really hard to paint within the lines uh, it just so happens that you can paint within the lines and still come out looking like you did the wrong thing. Uh, it happens all the time. It happens-
0: it. Yeah.
1: And it, I don't care how good of a job you do. Like, I mean, cause I mean, I got a ton of convictions, man. I got a ton of convictions. I did a really good job on all my stuff, but if you use force and a half baked video gets out there, it can ruin your reputation. And officers know this. Um, but they, it's still, it's just so ingrained in, into their mindsets. Oh, he, he got a lot of use of force. He's up to no good. You know, he's doing the wrong thing. Um, but to listen to some of these guys that say that I was abusive and all this are here. Um, you heard them brag, man. Like they broke a dude's fingers one time in like a pig pile. Or they, you know, broke a dude's nose. Or they hit a guy with the flashlight. It's like, you know what I never did? I never hit a guy with a flashlight. You know what I never did? Had to single-digit break somebody's fingers or uh, punch somebody while their face is on the ground. I never did any of that. Um, everything I did was controlled. I never hurt anybody. I never broke anybody's bones. I never put anybody in the hospital uh, for any length of time. I mean, I had a lot of my like ER visits, but like not because I was trying to hurt them. Uh, anytime I used force, it was always controlled because I was competent in my— abilities. A lot of these officers that get out there, they get scared and they hurt people because they're not controlled. Um, and those guys will brag about that silly stuff. And then look at me whenever, you know, I tee off on somebody and put a three piece combo on their head and they're like, Oh my God, that was terrible. Well, why is that terrible? But when you're rolling around on the ground with like six dudes and you look totally incompetent, you look, it looks far more excessive. Um, but yeah, yeah. you are right. And I am wrong, you know, uh, just because I'm capable of handling all my business myself and I don't have to call for, you know, four car backup to, to handle a drunk, you know, but, and I, and I, <laughs> you know, I'll put somebody on the ground, I'll go knee on belly and I'll throw them in a hobble and handcuffs by myself. And I'm not, I'm not saying that they're a brag. I'm saying that there because me being able to do that by myself, Gave everybody the perception that I was like this, like loose cannon because I didn't need because I was capable of doing these things on my own. And so a lot. of what, Yeah, it's just.
0: Yeah, so what would like if you had to describe use the use one word to describe your feelings at this time as you're facing prison time? What's one word you you could use to describe how you were feeling?
1: Uh, I was defiant, man. I was not. I was just like, put me in prison. See what I did. Like I. Yeah, I do not. I do not, like I said. I don't care away from anything. I mean, I went into prison with my head held high. Everybody knew I was a cop. I did not fear anybody in there, and I think that's the reason why I got along with so many dudes in there. Uh, my uh, roommate was a Latin King, or my cellmate. He was a Latin King, and uh, he was from <laughs> Chicago. He was in for a double homicide. Me and him got along great. Uh, well, I'm
0: be honest, man. I was worried about you because I've, I felt like you were doubling down on everything because like most people, like when they get in trouble and they're facing time, bro, they get rid of social media. Every aspect is gone. You know? And I was like, yo, what? And Corey, Like you yeah, were still no, on I social will. media. He still posting. Yeah. I remember you posted the evil Goofy. I wish I had the picture of it still. It was a Facebook yeah. post you made. It was like the evil Goofy. And the next yeah. one, it said 2020 riots. I would do it again. And in my mind, yeah. I'm like, Corey, no. Like, no. Like, yeah. what are you doing, I- bro? What are you doing? And then yeah. uh, there was an incident that popped off between – you and a couple officers on social media, and it yeah, started making rounds. Been,
1: yeah, this is after sentence. I had been banned. Like, I had been banned, and people were still feeding me information from this uh, Facebook group. And they were talking mad shit about me, dude. Just, like, crazy stuff. Like, And so I messaged them directly. I was like, hey, man, if you don't keep my ma- aim out of your mouth, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find you.
0: I was oh, like, I remember the comment. Reason. He said, yeah, I was like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see your bitch ass when I get out, motherfucker. I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah.
1: I, what was well, I, <laughs> uh, I don't was the, the guy's name. Oh, nothing. Well, they I remember the guys' names. Yeah. I
0: huh? remember the names. I remember the names. Yo, that was just I was like me. I'm. I tell people it ain't my drama. it ain't my problem. But I just yeah. sit and I do a lot of sitting and listening and watching mm-hmm. how people respond. And there's people that were sticking up for you. And there's people like, man, fuck that dude, he's gone. We don't need him, yo. So, yeah. and I was like, my concern was I was just your mental at that point in time. Cause I'm like, there's no way this guy's this defiant against the feds, man. But I'm kind of glad you were because we need people like that now that are like, yeah. I don't care if you're the feds, man. I, so what? <laughs>
1: Yeah, do, and I, do what I, you're gonna I, do. I still, I still make fun of the feds. Like I posted, I made a pipe the other day, so I do a lot of wood carving now. So I made a pipe the other day, and underneath it, I said for tobacco use only for the feds that monitor my account, because uh, <laughs> I mean, look, they're gonna look for a reason to pop me again. I know they are. Uh, the feds actually called me a couple of weeks ago and told me to quit making threats online, and I was like, "What threats are you talking about?" And they said that, "Oh, in 2024, you're coming off the bench," and they took that as a threat.
0: Oh wow, dude! Yeah, man, so they took it. so that's that's crazy, man. Yeah, yeah just, man. Yeah. They called me
1: up like, "Hey, you need to stop making threats." And I was like, "What are you talking about?" And they're like, "You said in twenty twenty four, you're coming off the bench." And I was like, "Well, maybe I am."
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm basketball now. I'm just saying? Yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming a lot. I'm just but man, so bad. So you get sentenced, man, and you got a wife and kids, bro. Like, yeah. And you, and in your mind, you you served your country as a soldier. I mean, you've been a cop for all these years, yo. You don't have a, a record real any sort of like criminal record. And all no, of a no, sudden zero. you're going to prison. Was that?
1: Yeah. I said, I'd, I'd never had a, uh, I think the most I'd ever been charged with is a speeding ticket. You know, I'd never been in handcuffs outside of the academy, obviously. Uh even after I got to prison, I didn't get in handcuffs until they put me in segregation for the first time.
0: So you walk into where were so how many you got what four years correct to serve?
1: No, I got what two years you? and two years. I got two years in, and I got two years probation. I'm on probation right now, but four years total. So if I screw up, I'll go back for another two years. But uh, I don't have to worry about that. They unless something wild happens, you know.
0: So, what, but, uh, what what's your wife's thinking when she hears and your kids like, "Daddy's going to prison for two years," and you, "Daddy's been a so, hero this whole time," and all of a sudden, yeah. "Daddy's the bad guy."
1: Yeah, so the kids still don't really understand the whole circumstances behind me going down. But we, we talked to them about it, and we explained it that daddy did something, and I have to go to timeout. Uh, we have to go to adult timeout. So that's the way we explained it to the kids. Uh, my wife, uh, man, I got really blessed finding the woman that I found, man, because she stuck beside me. She's been by my side the entire time. Uh, you know, we're financially struggling now.
0: Uh, I hate to hear that. It
1: is what it is, man. Like uh, you know, I'm not one to complain. Uh, I still do everything I can. That's one of the things that really bothers me about people. It's like, oh, I got a felony, I can't do anything, dude. I make, I carve things. I make spoons. I make wood things. You know, I make, you know, I I just carve stuff and sell it on Facebook Marketplace, man. There's always ways to make money. So even though we're we're not doing as well as we were when I was a cop, we're still not doing bad. We're still living the same lifestyle we were just. You know, things are tighter now. Uh, so I'm not... when I So, how long, broke, so I'm how, broke.
0: when you went in, how long... Were, you were still in the military when you got sentenced, too, correct?
1: Yeah, they the military booted me out. And I that's another thing, man. I got screwed by the military, too, because uh, they said they were going to give me a general discharge under honorable conditions. And then, like, six months when I was down, I got a letter <laughs> from uh, the DOD stating that I had been OTH'd. Uh, they, oh, they, other, other than, than honorable. Yeah, so they took all my benefits away from me and everything. How uh, many years luckily, were you in at that point? 18. 18 years, man. Yeah. Man. Yeah, just like six months shy of being able to retire. <laughs> uh, but I tried to talk them into like throwing me an IRR for a few months so I could get my retirement. They wouldn't do it. but
0: it's bad politics really, for him, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Bad and po- that's politi- the exact Politics thing ruin everything, my, man yeah my my uh my JAG officer that I was working for I was cuz I was at part of the JAG court this time cuz I uh, transitioned to become a paralegal uh I told him everything and he's like look man he's like the the tag wants you OTH to try to save face for the National Guard so that's the reason why they OTHed me cause I had called him from the, the jail phones and was like, Hey man, what the hell? You all said you were going to give me another uh, general under honorable conditions and you all OTH. me." he's like, well, the tag would not let us do anything other than that because he wanted to save face for the West Virginia national guard. So that's, that's the reason. Yeah. It was all politics, man. Everything bad that happened to me was politics related, uh, between 2020 and 2023. Um, so once I heard of that, man, I immediately, you know, called up some people and, and started making plans to appeal that. Uh, so it's already been appealed and I'm, I'm back to good with my benefits and everything. I got all that back. I'm back to uh general
0: oh, for the military. Yeah. yeah oh, a so, you, process. so you'll be able to yeah. uh, get your retirement.
1: No, not my retirement. That's no, gone forever. Just, okay.
0: Yeah. But okay. My VA, it's benefits, the VA. Okay. Yeah,
1: got all that back. Um, So it's been it was a little bit of a battle, but it wasn't that big of a deal. Just a lot of bureaucratic paperwork. Got that covered, man. But uh, (laughs) yeah, dude, the military was playing the same politics game, dude. Like, hey, uh, media has portrayed this guy as an evil person. We're going to separate ourselves from him and be like, hey, look what we did. We cut ourselves off from him. Uh, so we don't have to deal with that anymore. It
0: was whatever they could Everything do. Everything is about perception, man. It's yep. all, all about don't matter what the truth is, perception yep. is reality in this thing, in this thing of yep. life, brother. So you walk into prison, what's it like, bro? Like, because we all hear the stories of if you're a cop yeah. going to prison, you're gonna die, they're gonna kill you. And, Man. Uh, dude,
1: I, that's the way I had it in my mind. The the guys that walked, that took me to, like, when I got to prison, the guys that were walking me into the back to get all my medical stuff because you have to go through this whole screening process, they were like, hey, man, you got to stay away from the white guys, the Aryan Brotherhood. They're going to stab you up and all this. And I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. I was like, here we go. And they're like, we can put you in administrative segregation for your sentence. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. That ain't me. So I opted to hit the yard. Uh, I was out. For maybe three days, I had this like they gave me this little backstory as like a plan, but dude, they, their cell phones in prison. Like everybody has a cell phone in prison. Uh, they get smuggled in constantly. So somebody googled dude me.
0: Ass.
1: Yep, somebody googled me. And the next I know everybody knows who I
0: am. <laughs> And they're like, say, say, you're the police. phone smell funny. <laughs>
1: yeah, what does this phone speak for? You got bad breath. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, man, they, they all knew who I was within days. And then I just owned it. Like, you know, I, I tried to hide it for a minute. And then, like, when everybody found out, I was like, yeah, I'm the police. I was like, what are you going to do about it? And they're like, what do you mean, what are we going to do about it? I was like, well, I mean, there's two options. You can deal with it or get, it, you know, where we can fight about it. But, you know, just so <laughs> you know, I will fight every single person in here. And, Did uh, they know you
0: were a trained fighter? Uh,
1: I don't think so. I think that came out later on. But just the fact that I was like willing to throw down, uh, they kind of accepted me as one of their own. Man, it was it was really weird. It was a really weird dynamic.
0: And when you say uh, that, you're not t- you don't mean the Aryan Brotherhood, right? You ain't got no yeah. I don't <laughs> mean the Aryan Brotherhood. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, i don't doing the black prison Black Panthers. <laughs> yeah. So like,
1: my roommate was a Latin king. Uh, my one cellmate and me and him got along really good dude we had a lot of funny conversations because he's like he's like man he's like the fact that you're a cop makes me hate you but you're all right you know he he legitimately (laughs) would tell me he's like he even wrote it was funny because when the new york times did that piece on me he wrote a letter on my behalf to the new york times stating i hate cops but i still like Corey," you know uh it's it's weird man like uh, I met another guy who's a drug dealer from St. Louis, um, uh, young black kid, me and him worked out every day together, dude. Like he got, I got him into CrossFit. Uh, you know, he's out there doing bodyweight CrossFit stuff. Dude couldn't do like five pull-ups. I got him like by the end of, t- by the end of his sentence. Cause he had less time than me by the end of his sentence, he was doing like, you know, muscle ups, you know? So I like yeah. trained with him. Yeah. It was, it was weird, man. Cause I'm still in contact with a couple of these guys. Um, I only got one fight in prison, and it was from like this like young Hispanic guy that was like trying to front for MS13, uh, and it did not work out well for him. Uh, but like it was like during the Super Bowl, he was like lit up on like hooch and was like, "Are you the police man?" And I was like, "Yeah, I'm the police man." He's like, "You hate brown people?" I was like, "No, I don't hate brown people." He's like, "You kill brown people?" And I was like, "If I have to."
0: And he I just don't want like them that celebrating. I don't want them celebrating the National Independence Day in my country. Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, you know, he, he,
1: so me and him got into it. He's, he was like, so I was sitting down, and he was standing up, and he went to throw this big haymaker punch, and I stood up, and I put him in what's called a standing head and arm lever, and I choked him unconscious. And when I choked him unconscious, his other two buddies were, like, looking at me, so I dropped him, and when I dropped him, he kind of, like, crumpled to the ground, and as soon as he crumpled to the ground, I took off running. I ran back to my cell and got under my blanket and acted like I was asleep. Uh, so when the, when the, when the COs come running to see about the fight, you know, they always check everybody's hands. Yeah. They always check everybody's hands. So they're checking everybody's hands and they're like, you know what happened? I was like, I was asleep, man. I don't know what happened. <laughs> so they couldn't figure anything out. Weird as this may sound, there's not a single camera in prison. Like there's no, not like a snitch.
0: There.
1: Yeah. So this dude couldn't say he got choked out by the police in prison. So he just ate it, and the next day I saw him, and I was like, hey, man, are you all right? He's like, we're good, dude, and like that was, that was it. Like now They you, never came you, after me again and nothing.
0: You said you did yeah. get put in solitary at one point, correct?
1: Yeah, so I got put in solitary when I got transferred to maximum security. So I was originally in a medium security prison, and then they transferred me from there to a maximum security for some kind of security concern. They would never tell me what that security concern was. Uh, So they transferred me to Terre Haute Max, and I'm there, and then they just put me in solitary confinement. Uh, I'm in there for about a month or a month and a couple days or something like that. And they're using COVID as an excuse. And I'm like, there's no COVID. Nobody else is in seg because of this. So I'm like, all right, well, can I get a book? And they're like, yeah, we'll get you a book. And then, like, a day goes by, and I still don't got a book. And like, I was like, hey, man, can I get a book? And then, like, another day goes by, and I I don't get a book. So it's like a week later, I'm still begging the CO for a book. I'm like, hey, man, give me a book. I don't have anything to do in here. And finally, he gives me a book, and it's in Spanish.
0: Oh, Uh, God.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. he knew (laughs) what he was doing. Uh, But, yeah, that was probably the only CO that I ran across that, like, if I would have got a hold of him, I would have, like, legitimately beat him up. Like, because when you're in there completely by yourself with nothing but your thoughts, man, that is a miserable, miserable place to be. Uh, I think. What it's thoughts were
0: though, you like, having in there by yourself, man?
1: Yeah, eight foot wide by, like, 12 foot long. And I had, like, my only window was, like, viewing another brick wall. So, like, if I looked up at, like, a 90-degree angle, I could see a sliver of the sky for, like, a few hours a day. But, dude, I – there was nothing to do in there. You can only do so many push-ups and sit-ups in a day to keep yourself occupied. So, I mean, you're just laying there on a concrete bed with nothing to do but think. And, dude, like, it is just miserable. Oh, man, it was. I think
0: it came to a man, <sighs> what, what kind of thoughts were you having in there by yourself, man? Like, regret?
1: And mostly it was just, like, missing my family. Uh, I remember specifically thinking about, like, what is my wife and kids doing right now? I wonder if they miss me. Uh, you know, I I don't have regrets. I will never regret what I did as a police officer or what I did as a soldier. It's just I you're never gonna get me to say I did the wrong thing. Uh yeah. but
0: uh, really so what I was it like, so the whole reason like I said, the whole reason we have you here on this podcast is because during this point in time, while you were serving your time in prison, you started writing your life story to put out your story for the masses to hear which is why I have you here because you were able while you were in prison. If you all look at the screen, I'm going to pull up, do the screen share real quick. We have your book that you uh, purchased or that's not purchased your book that you wrote tragedy in America by Corey Evans, man. How did this book come to light while you were in prison?
1: So um, when I was in prison, there's not a lot to do. You know, I, I didn't, gamble i didn't drink i didn't do any of the uh the silly stuff to get over on the COs. so i spent a lot of time writing a book and there's a system uh called TrueLinks where you can email your family instead of writing letters um uh, it's like i think it's like five cents a minute to write and then on top of being so much a minute to write you can only write like 3500 characters in an email And I just started writing my thoughts out, man, starting when I was a kid, you know, just kind of reminiscing through my whole life and writing it. And I emailed it all to my mom. I was like, hey, mom, I was like, I am going to email you all these emails. I'm just going to kind of write and vent and talk and just kind of like self-therapy. And I did that for 18 months. And by the end of it, it was a pretty lengthy book. And my mom was like, I'm going to mail this out. And then Defiance Publishing, they're a conservative book publisher. They picked it up and you know, compiled it and edited it and, you know, printed it for me, man. It was a, it was a, a blessing to have somebody that was willing to publish my story because I didn't, I thought that by the end of me writing this, the only person that was ever going to read it was be me and my mom, you know. Uh, you know, there's a few stories in that book that my mom had never heard before and my mom when I called her, she was crying and she was like, I can't believe this happened. And I was like, Well, I was like, I was going through a lot of hard moments, mom. It's like, you know, I might be a tough son of a bitch, but I'm still human. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, so there's, there's things in there. There's, uh, I talked about a suicide attempt that I had. Um, and a lot of people are like, Oh, I thought you were defiant, thought you were so tough. And it's like, I was going to commit suicide because it, in my, mindset it was the only way for me to financially ever be able to take care of my family because I mm. had the SGLI bill which was four hundred thousand dollars life insurance yeah. department and so I had about a million dollars of life insurance coverage at the time and my plan was is I was gonna be leaving drill so that I would get my uh money. I was gonna leave drill and drive my car into a bridge abutment like I was going to fake texting and drive my car into a bridge abutment and kill myself. That way my family could get those life insurance checks and be taken care of. That was the thought process I had because in my mind, I'm like, I'm never going to be able to carry a gun again. I'm never going to be able to fight again. I'm never going to be able to be a warrior again because all these aspects of my life that I've trained my entire life to be are going to be taken from me and I won't have a means to provide for my family anymore. So, my idea was commit suicide, make it look like an accident, and get my family paid. And, uh, you know, and a that's lot of, deep, and brother. That's probably, probably one of the most, you know, weird ways, reasons to commit suicide. You know, I was so concerned about my family, I was going to kill myself to make sure that they were taken care of. Um, but if you know Christina Bevan, she saved oh, yeah. my life. Like, legitimately, she saved my life, man, because she called me. At the time, that I was going to be doing that, and she was able – I don't even think she knew she was talking to a suicidal person, but she was saying, like, oh, you and your family are so good. You're going to be taken care of. You're going to bounce back from this. And I remember explicitly driving by a bridge abutment, the very bridge abutment that I planned on killing myself on. I drove past that at 120 miles an hour with her on the phone with me, and it was – if it was not for her calling me at that point in time, we wouldn't be
0: having this conversation well i'm glad you didn't do it man um yeah. you, and the thing is you did. know what <laughs> yeah but, but you're not the only person i've heard that has those same feelings and has had the same thoughts i know a lot of soldiers that have had the same my family's better off without me bro so just trust me you're not alone in that aspect yeah. at all man but i mean like I, said, I haven't got the chance to read it yet but i definitely plan on it you know and i know i'm gonna get my copy from you you know we do the I tell everybody, we, I, anybody that writes a book, we do a signed, copy, uh, signed exchange, yo but man, to be able to write a book, man, is a monumentous, it's a big thing, and for you to be able to find a publisher and get it published is even bigger, because I tell people, it is so hard, one, to write the book, period, because you have all these thoughts in your head, and you don't know how to formulate these thoughts into a story that people are going to want to read, and you were able to somehow do that on your own without any guidance inside the jail.
1: Well, like I said, it's just, I just, you know, I started at the beginning and I just wrote my thoughts, man. I just, the the book is written the way I think and the way I speak. Um, so a lot of people might struggle to read it. I don't know. I have, you know, I haven't even read my own book, but it's just, it's literally just my thoughts. Like the way we're talking right now is how I wrote the book. Um, you know, I just kind of wrote as I thought and, just it just flowed out of me man just because you know you there's no one to listen to you in prison like these other inmates are all dealing with their own personal you know problems and a lot of them have a lot worse off than I do growing up you know a lot of these guys have really broken homes Um, so I didn't want to burden any of the guys that I'd met in prison with my story I wanted to try to keep my my tough guy mentality up in there because I didn't want to be viewed as weak Um, so I just wrote and emailed it to my mom, man. And uh, my mom was a big reason why I made it through prison because I didn't want to burden my wife either. You know, she's dealing with wife and, or she's dealing with the kids and school and she's doing so much that I try to just keep up appearances for her, be strong for her, keep her, you know, going. So my mom was really who I leaned on while I was down. Um, you know, she's, she's the one that really talked me through a lot of the stuff, you know, because anytime I've met with my wife, I'd always tell her the little funny stories that happened or, you know, some guy got beat up and I'd tell tell her about that. And I always try to keep things light with her. But with my mom, man, she was the one I really leaned on hard, um, you know, just because I knew I, can, I knew my mom could handle it. And, uh, you know, and I didn't want to burden my, my wife more so because she had so much she was dealing with.
0: Yeah. So you do what? 18 months, right? And then you yeah, get I think released. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah, it's, when you uh, get released, what's that like when you've been locked down? Like, say so you've been free your entire life, and all of a sudden you're behind bars for 18 months, and now you're free again. What's your plan yeah. going forward? So
1: I hit the ground running uh, like I'd never missed a beat, man. I went right back into job searching. I went right back into trying to find uh, a career. Um, you know, I, I'm a certified HVAC technician now, I'm certified in okay. plumbing. Uh, you know, I, I just I got, I had an apprentice, carpentry apprenticeship while I was in prison. But I did all these things, preparing myself to not be able to do the things that I used to do. So uh, I just kind of had a plan that I was going to get into the trades and uh, start working. And, you know, I just, I really hit the ground running, man. I didn't even slow down. Uh, you know, it took a minute to get reacquainted with, you know, comfortable life because prison is pretty uncomfortable. Uh, but, like, you know, my, my kids, it's like I never missed a beat with them, meshed right back together. Me and my wife meshed right back, back, back together. And I, honestly, I, I think military life had prepped me for that because being gone several times in the military on deployments, coming right back into civilian life, similar concepts. I mean, obviously not the same, but being gone and coming back, to that same very rigid, structured environment of prison, the same very rigid, structured environment of a deployment, it all, you know, I was able to just walk right back into life without missing a beat. Uh, Yeah. Coming home wasn't as much of a challenge as I thought it was going to be. Uh, Finding good work has been a challenge. Uh, Man, I can't tell you how many resumes I've had out. Probably, I probably put my resume into 200 places, 300 places, something ridiculous like that. And the initial phone interviews go great. I go in for like the in-person interviews and then the Google search happens. And when the Google search happens is usually when I either get ghosted or I get the, we've moved in a different direction, you know, email. Uh, so it's been really hard to find like good, well-paying employment. I've had a couple of jobs here and there that were like low, low paying or, uh, kind of temporary. I was a paralegal for a little bit. I did bankruptcy paralegal. work. I remember
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I I remember I met you downtown
1: yeah it's your little, your little and, office, uh, man. yeah that was uh it was a good job i, lo- I love the dude that i worked for uh me and him are still buddies uh but it was it just wasn't going to pay the bills man it just the the pay was low on it uh and it wasn't because he was a you know a cheapskate it's just that that kind of work doesn't pay that well um So I left that there and got into a maintenance position at a mobile home park and got really good at the mobile home stuff where I was able to build, uh, you know, recondition mobile homes and refurb them and stuff. Uh, And then I recently left that to take a job at another company. Uh, Obviously, I'm not going to drop their name because I don't want people harassing them. But uh, I got a job working at a uh, company, you know, fixing trucks and, you know, big rig trucks and stuff like that. So uh yeah man so it's been a it's been a long haul finding another another career path that paid as well as being a cop i know a lot of cops say they don't get paid well but
0: yeah uh, no that's 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 a, that's the most overblown thing i mean yeah. can we use more money of course but depends on where you're at if you're from out yeah. in eastern kentucky where you're from you making pennies out there bro you ain't scraped yeah, for yeah. like you in the big city life's good yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah I, I was i think when I was on PD with overtime and any off-duty that I worked, I think I was clearing like 70000 a year, you know. So it's not bad. Um, you know, I, could, I would always never say no to a raise, but, I mean, I wasn't struggling as a police officer, you know. And now that I'm making like $22 an hour, you know, uh, rehanging sewer lines, you know, I, I, I realized how good policing I really had it because as a police officer. Oh, yeah. Uh, you got a lot of dudes that are like, oh, I'm a police officer. I'm this and that. It's like, but you really don't do anything. You hang out at Thornton's. You drink your soda pop. <laughs> eat you know, it's like you ain't you ain't working, bro. Come on now. Yeah,
0: That's what There's a lot there's of dudes detected, out there. That, man.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of dudes out there that don't make that don't earn the paycheck. That's for sure.
0: I tell people but, uh, all the time, was, man. I was like, I tell people I couldn't do your job. I'm like, if only you knew the truth. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, there's way yeah. worse ways to make money. Trust me.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Being a cop, man, it's like, and I love being a cop, dude. It was like a hobby for me. It wasn't just a job. It was like a hobby. I love being a cop, dude. But at the same time, looking back, I should have been that guy. I should have been that slug, you know, because I would still be a cop nah. if I was lazy.
0: Nah, bro. Nah. It ain't who you are, man. It yeah, ain't who know. you are, dude. Nah, that ain't who you are. That, nah. I couldn't see you as a slug, my dude. Not, not the yeah. least bit. <laughs> yeah. So uh, how's your, let me, So, we're going to get ready to close this shortly. I got three questions I kind of want to ask you. So sure. after all this, has your viewing of policing and service changed after all this you've endured?
1: No, man. I'm still a huge supporter of the blue. I understand why a lot of guys turn their back on me. I understand the knee-jerk reactions. Uh, you know, I, st- I even understand why a lot of guys turn their back on me. Uh, Just because of the political environment, being a a cop is like being in politics, man, because all it takes is one thing that you say and your career can be over with. Uh, So I understand why a lot of guys did it. Now, I am much more uh, uh, discerning when I offer my support to police officers. You know, I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to support every cop the same. Uh, I'm very discerning. So if you're that guy that's up there busting your ass, taking down dope, taking down guns, doing the right thing, then I'm like, I got your back, brother. But if you're the dude that's like there for his paycheck and is going home, I got nothing for you because you're giving – you're doing everything that I'm against as a police officer. To me, every police officer should have been just like me. We should have all been out there busting our ass because I guarantee you if everybody worked as hard as I did – then Louisville would be the safest city in the country. But the, like, I, I remember it was a stat that I think George Rodman told, said this a long time ago, there's like 1% of police officers do 90% of the work. Oh yeah. You know? um, I'll push true. back
0: on that a little bit only on one part. Cause I feel like you have different, it's like a puzzle, like a car. You got guys that are the wheels. You got guys that are the, you know, the steering wheel that are the seat, Everything kind of comes together. You need all those different personalities to kind of work together. You need the guy that can talk. You need the guy that can be able to bust ass. But at the same time, even if we were all working like that, the problem is it's not us because we do the job, but the systems we have in this country, the political or the uh, court system has failed this country and has failed the citizens over and over again. So regardless of how much dope we're catching, man, it's kind of like, what's it all for if we're doing it, but the courts aren't there's no punishments to be had it's kind of all for nothing unfortunately uh
1: lmpd just recently posted a photo of a guy that they arrested for homicide uh not even like six months ago i got a call after i got out of prison that they were going to drop the criminal case against this guy because he fled to mississippi uh came back and uh they dropped the charges against me because i was in prison right so they dropped his charges they drop his charges six months later. He's uh, posted uh, wanted for a homicide. So because they let this guy go because of my case, he ends up committing a murder. So if they would have done their job and put this guy in prison like they should have, he would there would be someone else would have their life still as a, an example of that. Uh, and Jamarcus Glover, same thing. I arrested oh, yeah. Jamarcus Glover. Like, yeah, I arrested him like six times, dude. I, I nailed this guy to the wall like six times, like perfect cases. And they kept letting him go, like they gave him drug treatment. You can't give a drug dealer drug treatment. All you're doing is giving him a clientele base. Um, so it was, it was so weird to me that the fact that he is out and got busted again, dude, got caught again. again. And, they,
0: and they gave him bail again, bro. I'm like, y'all are the stupidest people I've ever met. And so that, that kind of leads me to my second question. Have you lost faith in America and the systems we have in place here in this country?
1: I not not the systems. The systems work. It's the people operating the systems that are failing us. It's not the systems itself. America's still the greatest country on earth. We still have the best governing system on the planet. The problem is, is we have elected a group of eunuchs to lead us. That is the problem. I have no faith in the people and the leadership. I have no faith in the leadership of Louisville, no faith in the leadership of LMPD, no faith in the leadership of the federal government. To me, it all needs to be ripped out by the root and replaced. Um, I agree. You just need strong people to lead, man. And we, we are we are electing people that make us feel good, not people
0: to do the job. Mm. Yeah, people that were never meant to be leaders, people that couldn't even get a job outside of right. politics, man. So exactly. my last question to you is, what's your hope for the country? What's your hope for America going forward? At, at this current time we're in, man.
1: Man, I, my, my hope is, is the next generation is coming up. My youngest sister and my boys, uh, this generation, I'm hoping that they can be led down the right path to fix the mistakes that my generation and the generation before have created. We've created so many problems for ourselves and for the future generations, and I'm really hoping that, some corrections can be made and that they can really pull us up by the bootstraps and get us going again. Just like uh, the the great depression guys, what do they call them? The silent generation, the guys that fought world war one, fought world war two and dealt with the great depression. Uh, That's kind of the same situation we're in now, man. Uh, And that, that generation saved the world. I'm hoping that this next generation can do it because we have screwed it up. Uh, So I'm, I'm going to raise my boys the best I can. And I'm going to, coach and teach uh the all these guys that i'm training to fight the best i can and i'm hoping that you know i can give them the same mentality the same mindset that i have and maybe we can pull ourselves out of this you know this chaotic struggle that we're in right now because i just i just don't see things getting better unless we really change our mindset and our culture as a whole
0: absolutely brother Man, so we're going to get ready to end this thing, bro. This has been phenomenal. This has probably been the best interview I've done in the entirety of my podcasting time, bro. So, man, before we go, if people want a copy of your book, where can they go to get a copy of, the, of your book? And where can they find you at on social media?
1: Uh, So, you can find me on Facebook uh, at Corey Evans. Uh, that's really my only social media. I got banned on Instagram again. Uh, TikTok, I got Commie, banned.
0: Tommy Graham, man. Tommy Graham. <laughs> Uh-oh, we lost you, brother. I think his phone just died. Oh, there it is.
1: Yeah, my wife called me. She first bumped me out of there. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so Facebook, Corey Evans uh, is my Facebook. It's the only social media I have. And uh, Tragedy in America can be found on Amazon and uh, Barnes & Noble uh, are the two places. And Defiance Publishing is the publisher. So if you want to hit their uh, website up and check out their other books, they got a lot of really great books to, to go
0: through so ladies and gentlemen there it is it's been it's going on almost two hours man this has been a phenomenal phenomenal interview Corey. i'm gonna move you to the green room and i'm gonna holler back at you in a second all right so hold out for me all right brother oh man oh man what a banger of an episode what an interview man dude i'm just sitting here like wow man this brother's been through the ringer and like i said it's one thing to have work with somebody and know them on a certain level, but I just, this interview just kind of took it to a whole nother level for me with knowing Corey and you just don't know everything. You don't know the entire story. Most of the time, this only story we're getting is what the media tells us in a quick blurb of a headline, you know, but there's, the truth is there's so much below that headline that we don't know. And we have to take everything we hear in the media and on the news and on social media with a grain of salt, because people have agendas that they are trying to fulfill. Everybody's got an agenda. I've gotten, everybody's got an agenda, whether it's good or bad, but the only thing that the agenda should be after is the truth. And so now we have here, we have Corey's side of the story. And I hope that you all tune in and share this podcast, put it out there because Corey's only one guy that has been come as he calls himself a political prisoner there have been many officers across this country who went to go work a shift doing their job and the next thing you know they're facing life in prison and their entire career is ruined because everything in this country now falls on politics and the perspective of those looking and it might not be real but that's because the media is so down and dirty with this and they're all for pushing their little agendas against to us man and i gotta tell people turning us against each other like i said they tried to tell to say that Corey was racist and i'm like i know racist people Corey ain't racist it's crazy that's why i tell people you have to unplug from social media and mm-hmm. the, the news and you have to actually go sit down and talk with people get to know people don't just read the headline and soon from the headline and can trust me i'm guilty of that too I read headlines and I hear rumors sometime and I automatically might jump to conclusions, but I have to remind myself that, you know what, maybe I should go talk to this person. So if you're still out there and you're listening and you still have an opinion about the former officer, Corey Evans, you still think he's a scumbag or you think he's this guy that just like to beat up on people. Go get the book tragedy in America and read his story from his perspective yourself, because it's good to have a different perspective because our perspective is not the only perspective that we have in this life. I and mean, life is multidimensional, man. I mean, there's so many different ways to see things. And maybe the way we're seeing things isn't right and isn't correct. So do my man a favor. Go follow him on Facebook. I'm talking about him about to him about getting back on Instagram to promote that book. Because that's like, literally, that's the best way to do it, man. But definitely share this podcast, please. Share, 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 share away, all right? So, man, I'm going to go ahead, ready, getting ready to close this up, man. Thank you all for tuning into the Iron Am Piss podcast, man. This has been, like I said, a banger, absolute banger going on two hours, man. So tell your mom, tell your daddy, tell your friends, tell everybody about the podcast. Be sure to leave me a review if you can. Five stars. Holler at your boy. Like I said, we're back in the saddle for 2024. And I got a bunch more interviews coming up and a bunch more shows, man. So thank you all for tuning in. Hey, I love and appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. The reason I keep doing this show is because of you all. And I appreciate you all. And I don't want you to think that I take you for granted at all. Ladies and gentlemen, I love y'all. And I will see y'all on the next one.